Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we're in a, ser- a long series on the book of Romans. Today is part eight. And I want us to look today at the problem that I'm going to call uh, of our split personality. As Paul says, why do we do the things we don't want to do? Uh, and, and, and don't do the things we want to do, as he spells out in chapter 7. So, so this is going to be a two-parter on chapter 7, because there's so much here. But I'm going to start by reading the entire chapter 7 of the book of Romans. So if you turn, have your scriptures with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 to 25. Uh, and Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, says this. Do you not know, brethren, from speaking to those, to those who know the law, who know the Torah, that the law has authority over someone only as long as he lives. For example, uh, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that, that binds her to him. So then, if she marries another man while her husband's still alive, she's an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released uh, from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brethren... You also died to the law through the body of Messiah, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were, con- we were controlled by our sinful nature, by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We've been released from the law so that we now serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the Torah, is the law sinful? God forbid, certainly not. Nevertheless, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the Torah. For I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced within me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, killed me, put me to death. So then, the Torah, the law, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become Utterly sinful. We know that the law, the Torah, is spiritual. But I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate to do, I do what I hate to do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it. But it's sin living within me. I know that uh, 
that, that good itself does not dwell within me, that is within my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but, but can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living within me that does it. So I find this principle, this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there within me. For in my, but in my inner being, I delight in the law, in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Amen. That's the whole chapter. <laughs> now, to get at this seminal chapter, Romans chapter 7, I want to do something a little bit different today, because I want to refer you to this very famous Robert Louis Stevenson novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and by the way, I recommend this classic work to all of you. It's only about 80 pages. Uh, it's a terrifying book, uh, uh, a terrifying story. It's about the good Dr. Jekyll, who, as time went on, became very unhappy uh, in his life. And the reason why he was unhappy, he said, is because, to put this on the overhead, he said this, uh, every day I do steadily nearer to that truth that man is not truly one, but two. I saw the primitive duality of man. I saw the two natures contending in the field of my consciousness. If I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because... I was radically both. In other words, as time went on, he began to realize that human beings weren't one, but two. Every individual is not one person, but is really two persons. There's a radical duality in every human being. And as time went on, he became very unhappy with his life because he felt like this created a sort of dead end. He was growing tired of being on this endless battlefield of these two selves. He called himself an incongruous compound. And he said this. He says, you see, nobody can really be happy uh, because I've got this virtuous self, a self that wants to deny selfishness, but I've also got this kind of grasping, selfish self. And both of them keep the other one from, from enjoying life. And then he says this, let me put this on the overhead. He says, uh, if each, I was thinking, could but be housed in separate identities, life will be relieved from all that's unbearable. In other words, he believed that this, that this radical duality was the reason why there's something wrong in his life and something wrong with the whole world. And then he says this, again on the overhead, he says, the unjust then might go his way, delivered from all the aspirations and remorse of his bright twin, and the just could walk on his upward path, doing good, and no longer exposed to disgrace by the actions of his evil self, his evil other. So, what happens? Dr. Jekyll comes up with this potion. And the potion enables him, for the first time, to separate out the, the two natures. And then, when he becomes his evil self, Mr. Edward Hyde, he becomes someone who's completely selfish. And he says this uh, on the overhead as well. He says, this being, Edward Hyde, 
was inherently malign. Uh, his every act, his every thought, centered completely on himself. Edward Hyde is the only unmixed human being uh, on the face of the earth. So that when, when you came up to him and you, you encountered him, you saw no redeeming characteristics at all. You saw nothing but pure selfishness. Nothing but someone whose every act and every thought centered totally on himself. And whenever anyone met him, their flesh would crawl. Because here was the embodiment of complete selfishness, unmixed with any good or any love for others. But the way the story goes is, is, this, uh, is this. The fatal thing that Dr. Jekyll didn't realize is this. He understood he had an evil self, yes. He knew he had both a good self and an evil self. But he had no idea how evil and how powerful the evil self really was. Because when Edward Hyde gets out, Dr. Jekyll finds that he's far more evil than he ever thought. And he describes it like this when he puts it on the overhead. He says, the moment I took the potion, I knew myself at first breath of this, of this new life to be much more wicked, ten times more wicked than I ever imagined. Sold as a slave to original sin. And the thought of this braced and delighted me like wine. And so Dr. Jekyll finds he can't control Edward Hyde. And in the end, Mr. Hyde wins. But notice the language he uses here in light of what Paul says in Romans 7. He, he says this, and again on the overhead. He says, the mo- as soon as I became Edward Hyde, uh, I knew I was wicked, far more wicked than I ever thought, sold under the slavery to original sin. And that language comes right out of Romans chapter 7. Uh, and as it turns out, if you do some research, Robert Louis Stevenson, he was raised in a staunch 19th century Scottish Presbyterian home. And, and this text of Romans 7, to some degree, is in, in, uh, inspired his story that, that he wrote. It's a terrifying story, a bleak story. Because Dr. Jekyll understands there's a sort of good uh, and a bad self, but when he gets underneath to really observe them, he finds that his evil self is far worse than he ever thought, and, and uh, we're waiting for the overheads, uh, and far more powerful, and that therefore there was no way for his good self to ever win the battle. Now here's the question. Is this account in this book scriptural for Yeshua followers? Is this really the teachings of, Ro- of teaching of Romans chapter 7? A lot of people think that the biblical view of human nature is bleak and pessimistic, just like this. That there's a good self and an evil self within us, and that the good self can never win. That there's just a sort of eternal battle, and all we can do is fight all the time our whole life. Is that it? Is that what the Bible teaches? Does Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, does this express the Christian and the Messianic Jewish view? And the answer is yes and no. Now, if you carefully read Romans 7, uh, you do indeed see a battle, right? This incredible battle, this startling battle, especially given the fact here that, wait a minute, Paul's an apostle. How could he have this battle? Paul spread the gospel through the whole known Roman world. Paul wrote half the New Testament. Uh, Paul's the role model for godliness, He's this incredible Messianic Jewish leader uh, and teacher and, and missionary and apostle who gave his life for the gospel. 
So how can he talk like this, admitting all these internal spiritual struggles? Uh, How can he say this? Look at Romans 7, verse 14. He says, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. For what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate to do. I know that good itself does not dwell within me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death. Look at that. Sounds just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? No. What's so interesting about Romans 7, the first signal that Robert Louis Stevenson only saw half the picture, is that there's a change of tenses, verb tenses, beginning in verse 14. Because verses 7 to 13, there's an awful lot of struggle going on, but it's all in the past tense. Uh, I was, I did, I saw. But then suddenly in verse 14, we have a present struggle. It's all in the present tense. I am, I do, I don't do. And this is the teaching that Robert Louis Stevenson did not understand. All of life is a battle between two selves. But there's a different war before you become a Yeshua follower from what happens after you become a Yeshua follower. What, what Rabbi Shaul, the Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul is trying to show us here is that there is a war between the selves that happens before you meet the Messiah. And there's a war between the selves that happens after you meet Messiah. The war between the selves that happens before you meet Messiah is a war without hope. You cannot win this war. And Robert Louis Stevenson, he does a great job depicting the bleakness and the hopelessness of it. But the war after you meet Messiah, after you meet Yeshua, is a war you can't lose. Now, what does this mean? It means a lot, which is why we're going to take at least two weeks on it. Uh, What this tells us is that when you become a believer, a follower of Yeshua, you don't move, by the way, from warfare to peace. No. Rather, you move from a battle you can't win to a new battle which you can't lose. And to understand the difference between these two battles is crucial. And if you look at the whole chapter of Romans 7, you're going to see in verses 7 to 13, we have this great picture of the battle you can't win, uh, where Paul describes his life before coming to faith in Messiah. And this is a battle that goes on in every human soul. It's universal. It happens to everyone who's not a Yeshua follower. But then, and many commentators, I would say even most commentators, stumble because of this, uh, because they don't understand this. Verses 14 to 25 is a new battle that comes to believers. Uh, Life in Yeshua is a battle. Let's not kid ourselves, but it's a different battle, a very different battle. It's a battle you cannot lose. And then finally, verses 1 to 6 tell us how to make the transition between the two. Uh, Because you're going to be in one battle or the other. It's only a question of which one. So let's look at the the, the outline of the chapter like this and put this on the overhead, please. Uh, The first is the battle you can't win. Second, the battle you can't lose. And third, how to make the transition. So, number one, the battle you can't win. In verses 7 to 13, we have this depiction of the battle you can't win. Paul is shown here as a very real Dr. Jekyll before he came to the Lord. 
Uh, he lived in many ways, by the way, he was a very virtuous man. He was a rabbi of rabbis, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was an upright man. He was a pillar of his community. As I said, a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous for God, uh, zealous for God's Torah, moral, religious. He had some awareness there was sin in his life, but basically he, he held that down and, and, and repressed it. Now, in the story, Dr. Jekyll takes a potion to separate out his good and his evil self. And he suddenly realizes he's far more wicked than he ever dared to believe about himself. He realizes that there is a self buried within him who is extremely selfish and self-centered, a self deep down within him that just wants for itself, and that's far more wicked, far more evil than he thought. And this battle goes on in every human being. And in the same way, a day came for Paul, in which he understood that there was a battle within him that had been going on in kind of a subterranean way. And then finally, one day, it broke out. He says this in Romans 7, verse 9. He says, Once I was alive apart from the Torah, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now, what does that mean? People have debated this for centuries. Uh, At one level, it sounds like he's saying, I was having a pretty good life. I was feeling pretty good. And then someone did this terrible thing and taught me the commandments. And then I felt terrible. (laughs) Is that what he's saying? No. That is an impossible reading. Because Paul was raised in a very devout, ultra-Orthodox Jewish home and was taught the Torah from his earliest childhood. There There was never a conscious time in his life that he did not know the commandments. So Paul knew the commandments and especially the Ten Commandments, and especially the tenth one that he focuses on here, thou shalt not covet. Uh, uh, He knew that from his earliest days. So what does he mean when he says in Romans 7, verse 9, once I was alive apart from the Torah, but but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I believe Paul's saying this. I was alive in my own conceit, and my own self-righteousness, perfectly obeying all the outward commandments of the Torah, the letter of the law, but not yet having eyes of faith to see what the Torah really required, the inward heart change that God's law was really after. I was circumcised, he says, in my flesh, but my heart was not circumcised. So I had this false sense of of being Torah obedient without realizing what the commandment really required and to whom ultimately it was pointing. For the goal of the Torah is Messiah. But God did not give the Torah just to be letter. For the letter kills. Only the Spirit gives life. Only the Torah written on your heart gives life. So verse 9 does mean does not mean the Torah had not been taught, taught the commandments. Of course he'd been taught the commandments. It means he didn't understand the commandment. Uh, but, but then the commandment came home. And Paul says, when that happened, it slew me. Here's how it slew him. First of all, we're told it's through the commandment, thou shalt not covet, that he finally came to understand his covetous heart. Look at Romans 7, verse 7. For I would not have known what coveting really was if, I ha- if the Torah hadn't said, thou shalt not covet. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, 
produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the Torah, sin was dead. Now, by the way, what does that mean, apart from the Torah, sin was dead? Sin clearly existed in the world long before the Torah was ever given. So what does Paul mean here? He's saying that the commandment offered a kind of platform, if you will, for sin. Uh, A platform as an act of rebellion against God. Uh, The giving of the commandment, and in particular this tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, revealed not only our selfish motivations, but also the true and more terrible sin of rebellion. For now, sin was no longer or even primarily against our neighbor, but first and foremost against the Lord. What does David cry out in Psalm 51, verse 4? Against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. David cries out as he saw his sin in light of God's law. In this way, sin, now heightened and enhanced by rebellion, found in the commandment a means of arousing all manner of covetousness. And then Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 13. So that through the commandment, sin became utterly sinful. That's a consciousness change. Paul finally saw, for the first time, how utterly sinful he was. So the first thing that happens is that the commandment came to him, showed him just what a Mr. Hyde there was down in there, lurking in the dark recesses of his soul. And the second thing we're told is that the commandment didn't just reveal Mr. Hyde, but in some ways empowered and aggravated Mr. Hyde. Because the text says this, look at Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me, it produced, actually produced in him every kind of coveting, every kind of covetous desire. Now here's how this happened. Thou shalt not covet. Paul says there was a moment in his life in which he was blissfully ignorant, kind of like Dr. Jekyll, uh, kind of like most of you, most of us, all of us. Uh, You're kind of aware there's another self, but you have no idea how wicked, no idea how deep, no idea how evil it is, no idea what you are really capable of. No idea. But something showed it to Paul. A potion. He revealed that he was tenfold more wicked than he thought. But this potion was not just the Ten Commandments in in general. It was the Tenth Commandment in particular. Thou shalt not covet. And here's why. The way all of us, Dr. Jekyll, we shield ourselves from from our knowledge of the real depth of the degradation of our Mr. Hyde's, our our other self, is that when we think of of, of the moral code, and everyone has some sort of moral code, right? Worldwide, people say they believe in justice, they believe in honesty, they believe in integrity and in keeping their word, they believe in, in being caring and generous. So we all have a moral code. We say, I kind of live up to that code pretty well, don't I? And Paul had likewise been focused on on his moral code, uh, the Torah. So he he looks at the Ten Commandments, and he says, I don't commit adultery, I don't kill, uh, I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't worship idols, I care for my parents, I honor them, I take care of them, so, therefore, I'm okay. But it's the last one that got him. In the Tenth Commandment, you get an actual definition of sin. 
And that shows that all the other commandments are ultimately getting at. Coveting. What does this word covet mean? It doesn't mean just to want something. It means to idolatrously want it. To inordinately want it. And through the Tenth Commandment, Paul came to understand that coveting is the essence of sin. Coveting is sin. So over here we have this here. What is coveting? Coveting is wanting anything more than God. That's coveting, and that's the essence of sin. Coveting is saying there's something besides God and besides his love and his salvation that I've got to have as a requirement for me being happy. That's coveting. It's the essence of sin. Let's put it another way on the overhead as well. What is coveting? Coveting is not loving and resting so much in God that you can be content in your present circumstances. It's saying God is not enough. For in coveting, you, you demonstrate your inability to believe God for all your needs. You are not content in God. Thus the Torah, rather than being sinful, God forbid, it actually reveals the true nature of your sin as being rebellion against the Most High, as the idolatry that it actually is. It's saying God's not enough for my happiness. And if you can't love him enough to be content uh, with who you are uh, and what you have, that's coveting. That's the essence of sin. And so Paul began to understand that this is, the, this is the essence of sin, the essence of all your problems. All your problems ultimately come through coveting. What is coveting? That's what Mr. Hyde was. Mr. Hyde was the personification of coveting itself. I'll put this on the overhead. Coveting, it's this bottomless pit in the heart of every human being. A black hole that says, God's not enough. I need money, I need love, I need popularity, I need power, I need pleasure, uh, I need comfort, uh, I need beauty, I need success. And no matter how much you descend into that black hole, you want more and more and more. That's the essence of coveting and the essence of sin. That's the essence of what's wrong with the world. That's the essence of what's wrong with you. That's the essence of what's wrong with me. It is sin. It's coveting. And the commandment, when seen through the eyes of faith and the the revelation of the Holy Spirit, it reveals this to us. Why do you get angry? Why are you so bitter? Because somebody or something got between you and what you think you really have to have. You've got to have it. And as you're demanding about it, you're coveting it. Why do you get worried? Why are you afraid? It's because you're, you're fretful and fearful and anxious over something you think you've got to have. Why are you despondent? It's not just because you want something. You know, wanting things can be fine. You know, God gave, gave you various wants. But coveting says, I have to have it. I must have it. This is the thing that will make me happy and make me me. And Paul begins to understand all his outward morality, hear me well, was nothing but his hidden covetousness. It's okay, of course, to want to be morally upright. 
That's a good thing. But for Paul, it became his identity, his sense of self-worth, his secret pride, his spiritual pride. He coveted it. He had to have it. He obsessed over it. It made him feel better than and superior to other people. It allowed him even to kill other people like Stephen in the name of upholding his religious morality. Paul didn't want to feel like he had to rely on God's mercy like your average sinner. Paul's like the Pharisee in the temple praying, thank God I'm not a common sinner like this publican over here. Paul felt he was far above all that. And that's the reason why he had all these problems. That's why he had this sense of and need for moral superiority. That's why he was so cruel to people. That's why his heart was so hard. And he never understood that before. But the Holy Spirit, through the Tenth Commandment, revealed it to him how deep his coveting was. And underneath and in spite of all his Dr. Jekyllness, all his decency was this grasping Mr. Hyde. So Paul now realizes that the serial killer has a Mr. Hyde, and the form of that coveting for him is violence. And I, Paul, I have my own Mr. Hyde, and the form of my coveting is moral rectitude, self-righteousness. But at bottom, we're the same. We're basically the same. And not only did the Torah reveal his Mr. Hyde to Paul, but the Torah also in some ways increased it and magnified it. Romans 7, 5 says the Torah aroused his sinful passions. And then the overhead, please, Romans 7, verse 8, it says, sin used the commandment to produce in me every form of coveting. Paul's saying, not that the Torah produced sin, God forbid, but that the covetousness already within me, within my sinful nature, was aggravated by the commandment. Moral education made him more covetous, not less. A perfect example of this is Augustine in his autobiography of the Confessions, where he describes how as a young boy he broke into someone's wild orchard, stole pears off the tree. Why? Not because he was hungry. Not because he even liked pears. He ended up throwing them out. Uh, He had no desire to take them, he confesses, until someone said, don't do it. He had no desire for these fruits until it was forbidden to him. And then he coveted them. Why? We'll put this on the overhead. Because the law aroused in him his fundamental sinfulness of heart. And that desire to be God rather than be under God. That's coveting. The desire to be your own savior rather than depend upon a savior. Augustine had no interest in the fruit. There was no coveting until he was told, you can't have it. And then there arose within him this little voice that said, nobody tells me what to do. And if you don't know that voice about yourself, you don't know your own heart. But if you do know that, you are looking into the abyss. Do you see this? Have you seen this? Paul's inner warfare was subterranean for a long time. And it wasn't until he really saw his own Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, until he really saw his covetous self, the depth of it, until then, he had no interest in turning to his Savior. 
You can't become a believer until you understand what's going on in this regard and you repent. Have you seen this? Do you feel this? Do you understand what's going on, this incredible warfare back and forth between the virtuous self and the covetous self? Between your conscience and the grasping bottomless pit within you? Do you see it? Paul, when he finally saw it, the text says it slew him. Look at Romans 7, verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, killed me. And it killed him in the sense that he realized that he now stood condemned before God. Underneath all of his outward morality, there was was this tremendous pride and self-righteousness. And when Yeshua appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Yeshua says in Acts 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in essence, at one level, he's saying, Paul, do you realize all your morality is just your way of trying to get out from under me as your Savior? And Yeshua also says this to you and to me, to every human being who's ever religious. Yeshua says, do you realize all your religiosity is ultimately just rebellion against me. Yeshua says, your religion is not getting you any closer to me. It's actually getting you farther away. And at bottom, it's nothing but a form of covetousness. It's your way of trying to be in charge of your own life. Do you see that? And Yeshua also, by the way, comes to the irreligious, to people who are living lives of sensuality and addiction and violence and cruelty and hatred, And he says, don't you see that you also are persecuting me? Everyone, before the gospel comes into their life, everyone, whether you're so-called good or so-called bad, you've got this warfare going on within you. Have you seen it? Do you see it? That's point number one, the battle you can't win. Number two, the battle you can't lose. Verses 14 to 25. It's a completely different type of battle than the first one. It's a battle between the flesh and the spirit that you have now as a believer. And it's very important that you see the distinction. We're going to look at this in depth next week, so I'm just going to go over it briefly right now. Uh, I'm going to sum it up today by actually going to another verse in another book of Paul's, Galatians 5, verse 17, where Paul says this, The sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you don't do whatever you want. Do you hear what's going on? Paul is saying the flesh still battles even within believers. So therefore you don't always do what you really want to do when you're a spirit man. But this is a very different kind of warfare as the warfare with a non-believer. Well, first of all, uh, in the old battle, the the, the Jekyll and Hyde battle, Robert Louis Stevenson was absolutely right in saying that they're both you. They're both equally you, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The conscious uh, self is you, and the covetous self is you. So you've got the conscience, and you've got the covetous one. They're both you. And this is something that modern psychology refuses to admit. You know, interestingly, you know, uh, even Freud, between the id and the ego and the superego, even Freud was, was never willing to say which was the true you, which was the true self. Uh, and here's the hopelessness of the unbeliever. Both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are equally you. 
They're both radically you. So how in the world are you ever going to find out who you really are plagued by this split personality? It's hopeless. Because each one has just as much of a claim to be really you, you're really your true self, as the other. This desire to be good and virtuous, it's written on your heart. It's embedded in your conscience, your spiritual DNA. And deep down you know that. It's part of what makes you human. That's you. But at the same time, they have this desire to be your own God. They have no one tell you what to do. That's you also. Absolutely, fundamentally, that's you. They're both you. That's one of the reasons why this is a hopeless battle for the unbeliever. But then Paul says in verses 14 to 25, that as a believer, yes, there's still a battle going on between good and evil, with the evil and good self within me, but that, that one of them now is the real me. Notice what, what, when Paul says it to the believers in Galatians 5.17, uh, when he describes how the flesh and the spirit war against each other within us, he says, you don't always do what you want to do. He doesn't say that there's a you that wants it and a you that doesn't want it. No, it's different now. Look at Romans 7.22. For in my inner being, in the true me, I delight in God's Torah. For a believer, the real me delights in God's law. Now, there's still another power within me, Paul says, that tries to pull me away from that, but it's not me anymore. Uh, you know, it's not the real me doing this. It's not me at all, Paul says. In fact, he says it's sin within me. Look at Romans 7, verse 20. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living within me that does it. So what's going on here? This is now a totally different warfare. And in this warfare, you're not really divided anymore. There's no longer two selves. Paul says that for believers, we're to put on the new man and put off the old. The old man, for a believer, is now just an empty husk, a vestige of the old life you've died to in Messiah. It's not really a self anymore at all anymore. Uh, if you're in, truly in Yeshua, your old self has been mortally wounded, and only the godly self is really you. So, put this on the overhead. Number one, in the first warfare between the two selves, they have equal natural powers. But in the second warfare, as a believer, the Spirit of God now dwells within you. And he writes the Torah on your heart. And he removes the condemnation of the law. You're no longer under the Torah's condemnation. In the overhead again, uh, the Torah, the law of God, uh, uh, in an unregenerate person, a non-believer, does nothing but aggravate the problem. It makes you more conscious of your sin. Uh, uh, because for the unbeliever, your, your conscience self, yes, it kind of submits to the law. And your comforting self, it hates the law. But not, hear me well, neither of them love the law. Neither of them delight in the law. Because the conscious self is trying to save itself through obedience to the law. And the coveting self is trying to save itself by rejecting the law. But here's what happens when you become a Yeshua follower. The gospel comes to you and changes your whole attitude towards the Torah, towards the law. When the gospel comes to you, the first thing, to tell, the first thing it tells you is you're dead. You can never satisfy God. And your religion and your irreligion are both ways, both forms of covetousness. 
of saying there's something other than God that I've got to have. But the gospel says this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's Yeshua took on our sins on the cross. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, whenever anyone met Mr. Hyde, they were creeped out. They were nauseated because they had never before looked directly into the face of sin. Sin itself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it doesn't say on the cross, Yeshua was simply treated as a sinner. No, what does it say? It says that on the cross, he became sin. And therefore, God poured out his wrath on Yeshua. It's like everyone, who poured, like everyone in the book who saw Mr. Hyde wanted to pour out their wrath on him, wanted to punch him out. Because you actually see sin, you want to destroy it. You see it as the evil that must be destroyed. Yeshua on the cross became Mr. Hyde. He didn't become a sinner. He became sin. Sin itself. And therefore God poured out his wrath on his son. He punished Yeshua for all the wrongs that you should have been punished for. And that I should have been punished for. Do you understand that? Do you believe and trust in the gospel? Has it moved you? Does it melt your heart? The minute you repent and truly trust in Yeshua, surrendering your life to him, the scriptures say the spirit of God himself comes into your heart and dwells within you and writes his Torah, writes his law upon your heart, upon your inward parts. Before you were a Yeshua follower, the law was just some necessary evil. But now it becomes the way to please the one who lived and died for you. And that brings us to our last point on the overhead. Point number three. How to make the transition. And we see this in verses one to six. And the strange stuff in verses one to six about the woman and the husband. And if he dies, she's free to remarry. What's going on here? It's actually a brilliant illustration. And here's why. Paul says, before we meet Yeshua, we're married to the law. And specifically, we're married to the, con- to the condemning function of the Torah. It has legal jurisdiction over us. The law, Paul says, is kind of, it's like your spouse. Because when you're married, your spouse is the center and the focus of your life, or at least should be. Marriage makes your whole life revolve around your spouse. And Paul realizes before he became a Yeshua follower, he was married to the law. And that's true of all of us. We may think we're serving God. But apart from Yeshua, we're really not. God is kind of remote. God is external. Uh, And our real heart is in our performance. Uh, Our real heart is in the works of the law. Uh, We're married to it. Uh, It's not a means to an end. It's the end in itself. Our focus is the Torah. Our focus is our works righteousness. And God, he's a sort of out there, distant, whose approval we're trying to earn by obeying the Torah. But when you become a believer, a Yeshua follower, a Messiah follower, you die to the condemnation of the law. And you die to your number one focus on the outward law. And most of all, you die to the Torah as your way of salvation. It's no longer the basis of your salvation. And indeed, that was never its true purpose. It was never the purpose of the Torah to to lead you to, to be your salvation. Its true purpose was to lead you to Yeshua. 
The Torah's primary function and purpose is to drive you to the Messiah. Indeed, rightly understood, the entire Torah is really all about him. So for the believer, the Torah is no longer used or misused as a way of salvation. It's no longer a way in which I try to deal with my uncleanliness. It's no longer a way in which I try to save myself. Instead, I'm now married to Messiah. And the Torah now simply becomes the way to please the one you're married to. The way to please your spouse. As long as you're relying on your performance to please God, you're not married to him. You're not in his arms. You're always kind of mad at him or afraid of him. He's kind of like your boss. You can only get so close to your boss, right? Uh, Because your boss can fire you. Uh, and, And so you're married to the law, and God is your boss. But when you become a Yeshua follower, you fall into God's arms, his arms of love, and you become his spouse, and he becomes the lover of your soul. And then the law becomes the way to please the one who died for you and to whom in resurrection life you are now married to. The law now becomes the way in which you nurture love, you maintain love, and you reflect back love to the Lord of your life. And this new relationship you now have with the law, this is, this is part of the essence of the gospel. It becomes a fruit of your salvation and not the means of your salvation. So, for example, suppose you, have a, you, have a, you had a sinful habit in your old life, right? For example, you had a, a drug habit or, or a pornography habit or, or a fornication habit. Back in the old warfare, you fall into it, you get upset, you vow to reform yourself, and you fall back into it. But now you are a Yeshua follower. Here's one of the things that goes wrong. Sometimes, if you're honest, you fall back into that habit. It happens. And you're tempted to say, Nothing's changed. It's the same old thing. Wrong. It's now a different battle. You're now in a battle you cannot lose. In the old days, this habit was expressive of your real self, but it no longer is. You don't get the same pleasure from it. You immediately feel guilty and convicted and and disgusted, uh, and you run to the Lord in repentance. If you're a real believer, you say to yourself, Why doesn't it taste as good as it used to? Why does it no longer satisfy me? Because it's no longer expressive of the real you anymore. Paul says in Romans 7.22, In my inner being, I delight in the law of God. Now you're in a battle you cannot lose. You were in a battle you couldn't win. And the way you make the transition from the battle you can't win to the battle you can't lose is when you're willing to say, I see what Yeshua did for me. He's not just a way in which I try to uh, earn harder, uh, to live a better life, to earn my salvation, but rather he died for me. He became sin itself for me. And I repent and I give myself wholly to him, mind, body, and soul. That's what causes your spiritual rebirth by God's grace through your faith. And the Holy Spirit, he comes to live within you. And he changes your heart. And instead of just complying with the law begrudgingly or hating the law, you now delight in the law and you love the Lord. Do you see this? Have you embraced it? I urge you 
to do so today. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you today that if we are truly in Yeshua the Messiah, if we've repented and trusted in Yeshua as our Lord, as our Redeemer, that even though we may continue to struggle with sin or with the flesh, we're now in a war we can't lose. Because your spirit, Father, the spirit of Messiah, dwells within us and writes the law on our hearts and circumcises our hearts and changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And so the old man, the sin nature within us, he's been dealt a death blow, a mortal blow, and is dying and no longer has power over us. Rather, we thank you, Lord, that our spirit man, our new man, made alive in Messiah, is now the real me. And desires to obey you, Lord, uh, and walk in your ways, and to please and honor you, and to dwell forever in your presence. So, Lord, fill us today with an extra measure of your Holy Spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh. Help us to walk in your spirit, to have the internal witness of your spirit, and no longer walk in the deeds of the flesh. We thank you, Lord Yeshua, that we are no longer married to our flesh to fulfill its lusts. Nor are we no longer married to the law to earn our salvation through our own works righteousness. But we are married to you. You, Yeshua, are our focus and our goal and our priority. And we only have eyes for you. And we obey your law as a way to please you and delight you. We fall into your arms, Lord. For you are the lover of our soul. And we pray this all. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.